Uh, what does God value? What's important to God? What are the values and practices that are valued in God's kingdom? On one level, this is a basic question. On one level, you probably already know the answer. The problem is we often do the opposite. We know the right answer, but our lives, our churches, show we don't really believe it. The last couple of years have shown this to be true. Over the last couple of years, it feels like every few weeks you hear another scandal. Another significant Christian leader, another significant reformed or evangelical leader, the kind of person whose books we've read or whose videos or sermons we've listened to, it feels like every month or so there's been another revelation, another scandal breaking open. And these scandals... Well, the way people respond to them, the context in which the perpetrators have been allowed to go on with their behaviour simmering away without anyone doing anything, show that many of us might say we know what God values. But has this truth changed us? One of the sad revelations has been it's not just the perpetrator, the person up the front, but the system around them valuing success and celebrity over what God values. Today we're listening to the conclusion of what we started last week. Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem. It's his final week before he will be crucified and he's in the temple, the temple where he's shown his authority. He's shown his authority by clearing out and purifying the temple, clearing out the court of the Gentiles, making space for God's mission. And he showed his authority in debates with the various religious and political factions. Last week we saw them come up and try to trap Jesus with trick questions. And every time Jesus sent them away with their tails between their legs. And having done this with all of all kinds of religious leaders, now one last person comes up with a question. But this bloke is different from all the others. He's different because he's actually asking a genuine question. This is not a trap. But someone who genuinely wants to know who Jesus is and how he should respond to him. And the bloke this question asks Jesus is the key question, the key question, what's most important to God? What does God value most of all? Have a listen from verse 28. So Mark 12, 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The Old Testament law, the law of Moses, had hundreds and hundreds of laws, hundreds and hundreds of regulations and commands, and it was a common Jewish theological question to work out how do they all fit together? What's the centre of gravity in the laws? What's the most important one? And Jesus answers by saying there are two most important commands, and they, they go together. Verse 29, the most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Uh, Jesus' answer probably didn't shock anyone. Yes, Jewish teachers would discuss the importance of laws and Jesus' answer would have been in line with what some of the others taught. His answer pulls together two well-known laws from the books of Moses. Loving God is from Deuteronomy 6.4. Deuteronomy 6.4. Loving neighbour is from Leviticus 19.18. And many Jewish teachers would have said something something similar. But the problem is, you can say the right answer. But it's easy to lose sight of this truth. So easy to allow religion and outward appearances to distract from the most important things. Verse 32, well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbour as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, we don't know what would have happened if the tables were turned. If Jesus asked him that question, we don't know what he would have said, but he agrees with Jesus' answer. But what's striking about the teacher's answer is that last bit. Loving God and loving neighbour is more important, more important than all offerings and sacrifices. Now, Put your remembering caps on. Where is Jesus as they have this discussion? They're in the temple. They're in the place, the location, which is all about offerings and sacrifices. In fact, people have made a business of making sure offerings and sacrifices can happen in the temple. A huge amount of energy, time, resources, attention, devotion is all poured into this building and the activity that happens there. But this teacher of the law gets it. He actually understands what does it mean if loving God and loving neighbour is the most important commandment. It means the temple is actually completely pointless unless you love God and neighbour. Which is in stark contrast to everything we've seen so far in the temple. Everything we've seen so far, the religious leaders are all about the temple. They are obsessed with the temple but not loving God or neighbour. They are deeply offended. They are horrified. They are terror. They are angry that Jesus would have the audacity to kick out people and actually make space for neighbours like Gentiles to come into the temple and know God. That horrifies them that the unwashed masses, people who aren't like them, who don't look like them, would come into their temple. They can't bear that Jesus would make space for God's mission. And Jesus has said, you religious leaders, you are the wicked farmers who beat up and kill God's prophets. Yes, you love a good ritual, but you hate the prophets. And you are now conspiring to kill God's beloved son. But not this teacher of the law. He sees the temple is corrupt. And so Jesus leaves this man with an encouragement. Verse 34, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, 
you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. Not far from the kingdom. You read that, and is there something in you that wants to protest? How can Jesus say that? How can this bloke be near the kingdom? He hasn't said the sinner's prayer. No one has taken him down the Roman road. He hasn't crossed the bridge to life. He hasn't faced up to the two ways to live. Didn't Jesus realise that it's black and white, that it's heaven and hell? Well, look carefully at verse 34. Uh, Jesus doesn't say this man's in the kingdom, but near. What Jesus is doing is encouraging him. Hey, mate, you're heading in the right direction. You've seen that outward appearances mean nothing without the heart. It's a little reminder for us that sometimes we can be a bit black and white as we're talking to people. And unless they've gone and completely crossed the line, we go, oh, mate, you're not good enough. No, Jesus is actually encouraging this guy, keep searching. But he's near the kingdom, only near the kingdom. What's he missing? What, what is missing for him to enter the kingdom is to attach himself to the king. To not only recognize Jesus as a good teacher, as someone who loves God's law, but that he's also God's king. And that when the Lord is one, that Jesus is the one Lord. And so as this guy rejoins the crowd, I like to think that he joins the crowd and continues listening to Jesus. He's been listening all day. He's going to keep going. And now Jesus takes control and he starts asking the questions. And having just talked about the heart of God's law, Jesus once again raises the big question, the question of his identity and authority. And he does this by bringing up a line from a psalm that seems to make no sense. Verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Uh, David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. Uh, To really get this question, you've got to go back to the psalm Jesus is quoting. Uh, Jesus is quoting Psalm 110, so let's turn there. If you've got your, grab your Bible, it's page uh, 423 in the church Bible. So flick back there. Uh, Psalms about halfway through your Bible. Uh, We're going to read this psalm, and as we read it, We're going to hear how it's a song about the victory of God's promised king. So let's read it. Psalm 110, page 423 in these Bibles. Of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor like, uh, sorry, arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. 
You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way. And so he will lift his head high. Now, there's there's lots going on in that psalm. The whole Melchizedek thing is fascinating. But today, we're just going to focus on the heading. In, In my Bible, that's the bit in the italics. And the first verse, because that's what Jesus focuses on. But we need to get the whole picture to see that this is about the victory of God's king. Now, do you see the heading there uh, of David, a psalm of David? Now, most headings in English Bibles are not God's word. They've been put in by modern translators and editors uh, to help us find our way around, but not in the Psalms. The Psalms are different. When it says of David... It's an ancient heading uh, telling us King David, Israel's great king, wrote this psalm. And that's important for understanding Jesus' question. It's important to know that it's David who wrote this psalm. Uh, The other thing that's important background is the first line where it says, The Lord, in all capital letters, Lord, all capitals, says to my Lord, which has no capital letters. Now, whenever you see Lord spelt with capital letters in the Old Testament, it's translating God's name, Yahweh or Jehovah. Now, why English Bibles do that, why they put Lord in all capitals, that's a conversation for morning tea. Just trust me on it for now. So here you go. Here's an extended paraphrase of verse 1. You could say, a psalm written by King David, Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to my, says to David's Lord. That's what it says. It's just a bit hard to see it in our English translations. The question Jesus is getting at is, who is David's Lord. Who's the second Lord in the sentence? The first one's obvious. That's Yahweh. That's the God of Israel. But who's the second bloke? Uh, in ancient cultures, the only person a king would call Lord is either a more powerful king, an emperor or something like that, or an ancestor. You know, their parents, their grandparents, their great-grandparents... David could call his father Jesse. He could say, Jesse, my lord, Jesse, sir, you know, something like that. But David would never, he would never call a son, even Solomon who came after him. David would never call a son, a grandson, a great-grandson. He would never call him lord or sir. It's just not done. So who does David call my lord in this psalm? And when you read the whole psalm, as we did before, it's clearly a psalm written about the Messiah, the promised king, who, because of other parts of the Bible, like uh, 2 Samuel 7, the Bible says God's promised king will be a descendant or son or great, 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 great grandson of King David. And that's the dilemma. Why would David call someone who is younger than him a descendant, my Lord? And Jesus doesn't give the answer, does he? He doesn't, he doesn't say, he just leaves us hanging. But you can imagine, I like to imagine that teacher of the law, the one that asked about the most important commandment, 
who's just been told that he's not far from the kingdom, who's been listening to Jesus teach all day, who heard the parable of the vineyard owner who sends his own beloved son. And I wonder if even then he starts putting two and two together and realises what Psalm 110 has been saying all along, that the only way David could call the promised king of Israel, the only way David can call the Messiah my Lord is if the Messiah is the eternal son of the vineyard owner, if he is the son of God and shares in in our God's divinity. I wonder if even on that day he started to inch closer to the kingdom of God. Maybe he began to recognise Jesus as Messiah and Son as he recognises Jesus' identity and authority. Now, the theme of authority has been highlighted whilst Jesus has been in the temple. That's been a big theme in the temple. It's also a big theme in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110, verse 1, Yahweh says to David's Lord, to the Messiah, the Father God says to the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Psalm 110 is all about what's going to happen to the enemies of the Messiah. Who are the Messiah's enemies? Well, on that day in the temple, they're the ones who tried to trap Jesus, the ones who've been conspiring to have him killed. And so in raising this question from Psalm 110, Jesus isn't just shining a light on his identity, but his authority as the Lord of Psalm 110. It means the end of his enemies which is where Jesus turns now. So back to Mark chapter 12 and verse 38. Mark 12, 38. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at the banquets. They devour widows' houses. And for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Unlike the teacher of the law, that one we've just met, who appreciated that true religion, the most important thing before God, isn't outward appearances, not ritual sacrifices or offerings, but it's loving God and loving neighbour, Unlike that fellow, Jesus said the religious leaders are all show. They're all about rituals and the temple and looking good and having power, but they hate God and they hate their neighbour. It's a big call to say that religious people hate God and hate their neighbour, but Jesus gives the proof. They hate God because their prayers are just for show. When they go to the synagogue, it's about position and power. And they hate their neighbours. Instead of protecting and honouring, instead of ensuring justice is done to vulnerable people like widows, they destroy them and devour their houses. And as Jesus leaves the temple, we see an example of how the leaders in the temple rob and defraud vulnerable people. Verse 41 Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put. 
and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This poor widow demonstrates two things at once. On one level, she shows us what loving God with all your soul and mind and strength looks like in action. She loves God so completely, she trusts God so completely that she gives to God quietly, not for show, but she gives her her last penny. She empties out her purse to God. This woman loves God with all her heart and mind and life. So she stands in contrast to the rich people, the rich religious people who give and it's just all show. They drop their bag of big bag of coins in, making sure it jangles and rattles for everyone to hear. But what they give, if, if you were graphing their net worth, it wouldn't even make a blip on, on, the, on the graph. Barely, barely even see the nudge it makes on the way down. And so the question Jesus asks us is, Who's more generous? Who loves God with their whole heart more? Well, I like the way Paul Barnett puts it. Uh, The measure of true sacrifice is not what we give, but what we keep. The measure of true sacrifice is not what we give, but what we keep. And so on one hand, uh, this widow is amazing, isn't it? She shows us what really loving God looks like. But on the other hand, she is being devoured by a corrupt temple. This poor widow should not have been giving. She shouldn't have been asked to. She shouldn't have been giving her last penny into the treasury. She shouldn't have been propping up their corrupt religion. She shouldn't be paying the teachers and their flowing robes. The temple treasury should be supporting her. Deuteronomy 26.12 says, When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. What's the tithe for? It's to support the refugee and the homeless, the widow and the orphan. If the leaders loved God and loved their neighbour, the tithe would have been going to feed this poor widow. But instead the leaders were wicked. They didn't love God, they didn't love their neighbour. In fact, they used their power, their religious power, to destroy this widow, making her destitute, devouring all she had. And sadly, actually, it's it's more than sad, isn't it? It's disgraceful. We've seen the same kind of oppression from leaders claiming the name of Christ. Yes, it's the, the dodgy prosperity gospel preachers with their gaudy suits and bad hair, their message of donate to 
my ministry, sow into my ministry, $10, $100, $1,000, and God will give you more. And we all know that they're just stealing from desperate people. If only people had a little bit more discernment, but if only those people just shut up. But they're just doing it to line their own pockets, aren't they? It's, it's a disgrace. It's blasphemy. But we can point our fingers at them, but why do that when there is sadly plenty of examples in our own tribe? The people who write the books we read and whose sermons we download. They may not be as crass as to manipulate people for money, but every one of the scandals we've heard where a leader has turned away from loving God and loving neighbour and has used their power and influence to oppress people, to bully and damage them emotionally and spiritually, to take advantage of them sexually. And what may make it worse is how churches and parachurch ministries make excuses, cover it up, making the evil more great. Oh, if we let this out, it'll destroy their ministry and their platform. And think of all the good that they've done. How can you do good if you are abusing people? No matter how many people go forwards and buy your books, what does Jesus say about them? Watch out they will be most severely punished. And we need to be aware even here, don't we? It's not just the leaders with the big platform who can be bullies and oppressive. So you need to know that I am accountable. Our elders are accountable. If you see that kind of behaviour going on here, we need to be called to account. And in our denomination, the process is to report it to the presbytery. This is really important, isn't it? The name of Jesus is called into disrepute because of that behaviour. It's also important that we hear Jesus call to us, to his people. Just like Israel was called to love God and love their neighbours, that was the most important commandment for Israel, more important than their sacrifices and offerings. The same thing is true for Christians. Followers of Jesus are called to love God and their neighbours. In 1 John, God says, Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now Jesus used the word, not brother and sister, but neighbour, didn't he? There is a difference. Neighbour is a bigger category, but the principle is the same. And John's point here is important, isn't it? Loving God and loving people go hand in hand. You could imagine if the greatest commandment was love God, then performing religious rituals could express that love. But that's not what our God is like. Because our God is love, then loving him must be shown in loving one another. And one of these things this means is to be a Christian is to be part of a church. To love God, you've got to be part of a church because you can't love your brothers and sisters if you don't know them. 
And one of the ways we talk about this here is we want to be a church where we know God and love one another. Something else I've been reflecting on is our church isn't about building a following, but growing a community. In our currently overly connected age, there's a temptation to be about collecting followers, building a platform, being just like the teachers of the law who just want to be seen by building power and prestige through looking religious. But that's not what God's church is about. It's about loving God, which is demonstrated in how we love one another. God calls us to be a community, a family of love. A family where widows and other vulnerable people are loved, honoured and cared for. And I think we've got some way to go here, don't we? Have you ever used the excuse, I'm too busy to care for that person? I'm too busy to visit and have a cuppa with that widow or widower, to listen to them, pray with them, to read God's word with them? Yes, look, that, we're not, we may not be devouring their houses, but God has called us, Jesus calls us not just to not do evil, but to actually love our neighbour as ourselves. And if we're not, the question John asks us has to be asked, do you love God? Why do we love God? Well, the point of the greatest commandment, the point of 1 John 4, it's not just a raw command. You must love God. It's a reminder that God is lovely. It's not that God is horrible and we've got to find something in ourselves that enables us to love him. No, we are the sinners. By nature, we are enemies of God. But God shows us he is lovely because he first loves us. He shows his love for us by sending his son, our Lord, the Lord of King David, to be our king and to draw us into his kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father God, we praise you for your great love for us, that you have come near to us in the person of Jesus that our Lord has lived, died, risen again, and now lives with you and for us. Please capture our hearts with this truth. Grow our love for you. Help us to see that you're praiseworthy, beautiful, lovely. Help us to love you with all we have, and as we love you, help us to love one another and our neighbours. Help us to show this love particularly to those who are vulnerable. We ask these things for Jesus' glory's sake. Amen.